process, not a, not a bottoms up or tops down sales process. It's it's this idea that you, you can't be in the room all the time. And so community and having a product that people can go and try themselves and discover some value with themselves is extremely important because you, you need at that exact moment when someone is trying to select a solution, you need to be in the room and you're not going to be there physically, but you can be there in the minds of developers if you have you know, a great self-service experience like a company like AWS or, or Twilio has. And Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we got Evan Kumak, CEO at Finn. Evan, thanks for doing this. Thank you for having me. So I want to talk about Finn. Maybe as just kind of a, a lead up, can you talk a little bit about kind of your, your previous career history starting before getting to this? Yeah, absolutely. So I joined Finn in December as CEO. And, you know, it's an interesting thing. Finn is a, a venture funded startup software company and it's it's always an interesting thing to come into an early stage company as a CEO and non-founder. The the way that I got there was I was working as a general manager at a company called Twilio who many of your listeners probably know. And actually I was at Twilio for about 10 years from right around the series B financing through the IPO had the the pleasure and privilege of going through that whole process and then far beyond IPO. Twilio is now, you know, a very highly valued company. And that was an amazing, amazing ride. I sometimes refer to it as my getting my PhD in, in SaaS. I feel like I just learned an amazing, amazing amount. And the team there was incredible. But before joining Twilio, I actually grew up in New Zealand. And I grew up in a small town called Paraparaumu. Uh, not exactly a tech hub, although there's actually some really great uh, engineers and things that coming out of there now. But uh, when I was growing up, fairly limited access, I would say, to sort of technology expertise. And I always had a, a very strong obsession, I guess you would say, with software. And I think uniquely, there's a lot of people who grow up built, writing code, loving computers, loving software. I was really obsessed with the software industry. I was really obsessed with the competitiveness, with the idea that businesses could grow so quickly, this kind of egalitarian nature of the industry where it's like, if you have a good idea, all of a sudden, you look at Facebook or a company like that, what it can do in 10 years on a global scheme is just completely unprecedented in, in, in a sort of capitalist economy. And so I was very obsessed with software as an industry. I was obsessed with software as a technology. And so after I graduated in New Zealand, came out to Silicon Valley and very quickly started at Twilio. And basically that was, that was my ride. So, you know, I think today I just looked, I think they've got a $57 billion market cap. How many, how many employees when you started there? I don't actually remember, but it was 30 something and it was, it was fairly small. One of the interesting things about me joining Twilio was I kind of joined at the same time, the same day uh, or the same week as the other folks starting the sales team. So Twilio was pretty unique in the sense that we were doing, I think at that time, about $500,000 of revenue a month. Uh, with no real sales function, there was a there was a person running what we call business development, and and that all in one week we basically said, okay, let's get an enterprise sales rep, an inside sales rep, a sales manager, 
and myself and I was essentially the the first sales engineer and yeah that was it was it was pretty interesting we had you know Twilio is kind of famous or seen as somewhat of an icon in this kind of bottoms up SaaS sales model where companies ad- adopt technology themselves and I think a lot of that is mythology I think sales teams especially today with SaaS being so incredibly competitive are extremely important for most of these companies and I do think that having a you know a long tail community of users is very very important and having people that will choose your technology uh, when a project starts without ha- you having to be in the room to sell it to them is extremely important but when that company really started taking off was when we really figured out our selling motion when we really figured out uh, how to put large contracts in front of customers how to get them to sign how to keep them renewing and I th- and and also how to sort of cross the chasm into more traditional enterprises that was I think when when the company's revenue really started going game. T- tell me again, you uh, what kind of revenue? Five hundred thousand a month. It was it was something I, I, yeah. I distinctly remember a few months after joining that we had our first million dollar month, and we were growing pretty quickly month over month. So it has to be somewhere around that that uh, ballpark. Sure. So I worked at I worked at big firms. You know, Citigroup is one, you know, one of the largest financial institutions in the world. And I've worked at companies with 30 people, but I've never worked at anywhere where they went from 30 to multi-billion like this, right? And so I'm interested in, in your thoughts. You know, you got to think. So if that's $6 million a year revenue when you join and they did, you know, $1.7 billion revenue last year or something, I think, right? What do you feel like are a couple of the biggest takeaways from that experience that you're now bringing to Finn? It's a very good question. I mean, uh, I'm sure there's tons, but I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, some of them are very cliche, and probably the most sort of cliche, and and I, but I think the most important is just a generic customer obsession. Our, I think Twilio CEO Jeff was incredibly customer occupied. There was very little appetite for building things, building products, building features that were novel and interesting, but didn't have an immediate value to either an existing customer or an imagined customer, but one that we could, you know, one that was very tangible and very obvious. I remember chatting with him once and something that really stuck with me is I was, I was always very paranoid. I was always very paranoid about our business. I was very paranoid about competitors and I was very paranoid about technology life cycles and how long can certain trends last and all this kind of stuff. And I remember chatting with Jeff once and we were talking about Amazon specifically, I believe. And I said something along the lines of like, aren't you worried about Amazon? Because we were a big customer of Amazon. We were running on, on AWS. And so it seemed like if they decided to come into our turf, you know, they, w- they would have uh, it, some level of advantage over us. And his response was basically immediate and sort of very clear, which was Amazon wins because while everyone else is worried about Amazon, Amazon's worried about customers. And he was just like, had that mentality all the time. It was just very, very fixated on making sure that everything we did was right for customers. And so I think it's very tempting, especially as a technologist, to break away from that and to focus on problems that you yourself find interesting, problems that are novelly difficult. And it's not to say that these are bad things or that problems that customers have won't also exhibit these properties, but the customer has to be at the center of the conversation all the time. And I think, you know, even to the extent that for a B2B company specifically, I believe, I think even a company's vision can really change over time. A company's kind of core mission can evolve. 
uh, as a result of the feedback coming from customers. And I saw that at Twilio, I think, you know, in the, in the, in the early years of the company, we were very fixated on fueling the future of communications and, and kind of really thinking about telecom and, and telecommunications a lot. And as we saw how customers were really using the product, which was more about engaging with their customers at the edge of their business, the vision and, and mission of the company sort of evolved to, to really be more around customer experience uh, and customer engagement. And I, I think that's totally fine. I think you know, in a consumer software company where you're kind of making a really big bet based on some intuition that you have about, about the world, it's a little different. I think the, the companies that tend to be successful are the ones where that vision, that idea that the founder has happens to match up with some future trend in society or, or they can get people on board with that, that idea. I think in a B2B company, it's much more iterative, much more about listening to customers, much more about just evolving the product and, and the vision to, to align with what you're hearing because it's very hard to, to, to intuit what the future of business looks like. So that, that would be the main one. And, and, you know, I know that sounds like kind of cliche and it is a little bit, but I do think that's, that's really at the core uh, of, of how I want to think about leading the company. I think there's a few more, and, you know, like if we wanted to just say like, what, what are some that are like really unique, for example, I do believe that you can tell when you use a product, especially a B2B software product, you can tell how much the CEO or the very most senior leaders in the company are involved in the product itself. And, you know, not to disparage like anyone, but if you look at say a company like Salesforce, that's grown a lot through acquisitions. Sometimes the product experience can feel very fragmented. And, you know, and I think it's because there's like a lack of a singular strong vision coming through the product. Jeff at Twilio was always extremely involved in the product, even when we were going through IPO and he was incredibly busy and he's on CNBC in the morning and whatever else, you could guarantee that if he was going to miss a pipeline review meeting for sales, like maybe that'll happen, but you were going to see like Google doc comments in your, you know, if you had written your specification for your product, you were going to see his comments coming in at 10 minutes before midnight, because like that, that was just something that, that was, you know, it's just so important and so high leverage. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm really interested to find out about Finn is, so our consulting firm, we used to teach a lot of operational excellence courses. And, you know, I went to Japan and did this, you know, went to Toyota and, and I got certified to teach. And, and even though we've moved more, more away from the seminars, like, I feel like now I've got that like baked in, like I can't unsee it. Right. And what's interesting, though, is it is such a manual process, the the like the traditional lean methodologies, right? And, and usually done poorly, hence the reason most of those transformations don't work out, right? But it seems like, I don't know, it seems like there can be such a technological advantage of knowing so much more about what's actually happening, because you can't really fix anything you're not measuring, right? But then there can also feel like, my guess is that some people have some concerns of does the, you know, in what ways does technology not outperform, you know, human observation? I, I'm interested. I know you guys aren't like necessarily just operational excellence, but it it feels like there are distinct elements of that in your business. Absolutely. I, I mean, I think actually operational excellence is not a, a terrible term. There's There's other terms that are being ideated to describe this kind of category that we're part of creating. One of them is execution management, but 
it kind of comes down to, I think when you talk about operational excellence, it maybe leans a little too much towards like the human operational aspect. But the way that we think about it is processes are at the core of a business and processes are executed and they get executed by humans. So the way that humans execute process is very important to, to the overall execution of your, of your business. They get executed by software. And so understanding like where software and technology are either helping or hindering your process execution is very important. And more so, perhaps even more so than either of those is processes are executed in accordance with how they are defined. And so if you can actually improve the definition of those processes, uh, then there's potentially like quite a lot of leverage you can get out of that on the human and technology side. So what Finn does is Finn observes large teams of people who are working. We observe the way that they are working, their work patterns. And we do that through the web browser. This is based on our observation that almost all enterprise applications today are running inside a web browser. From that observation, we're able to for example, draw conclusions about things like what what methodology of carrying out some process is most likely to result in higher customer satisfaction, maybe to find training deficiencies or to find examples of, you know, we could tell you, for example, in some percentage of cases when performing a flight ticket change, the agent ended up using Google Translate. And in those cases, there was a, you know, 20% higher time to resolution or something like that. And so you can sort of figure out based on what humans are doing at an individual level, but also at a, at, a, at a very large team level, what patterns are the best ones to be following? And uh, yeah, you, you mentioned there was another piece to your question, the first piece there. You were talking about, I, I feel like I missed something. Well, okay. To me, there's such an obvious advantage, you know, because I've, you know, I've, I've gone and done site tours at places all across the country and and even though, you know, traditional lean is maybe feels more like a manufacturing thing, like it's been very adopted by the medical community, finance, military, all sorts of folks right. have, have embraced it and just applied it to that world, right? So, but I actually, I remember now what, okay, what I was good. thinking when you were saying that, which is if you look at the transformation that software development had, and, and I know I talk a lot about software, but I, you know, it is eating the world and it is basically business now. So the, the transformation that software went through in the 1990s was this idea that this flawed idea that someone in a, in, in a senior position could define how everything should work. And then mm. a bunch of people would go and build it and it would work exactly as the person had described. And then that would be the solution. And that gave way to kind of agile software development. If you look at what's happening with teams, operations teams, and, and actually like really all teams across businesses. I think there's a similar transformation happening. I remember at a certain point when I was when I was younger, I was I always thought like enterprise architect. That sounds like a really cool job. Like I like that sounds like the most like highfalutin job I could imagine. And I thought that would be a really cool thing to do. And what an enterprise architect was essentially is someone who would sit at, near the top of a business and sort of define these processes and how they should be executed across a company. And I think that, you know, that idea is just as flawed as the idea as it was in software development. And what actually happens is there's no enterprise architecture. Enterprises just sort of evolve and they evolve at the edges. That's kind of where you have the greatest amount of heritable variation. If you want to use a biology concept, it's kind of that's where the most opportunity for changes. That's where the highest staff turnover might be or fastest growth might be most interactions with customers. And so, especially now with, with SaaS, you have this really interesting phenomenon where, you know, you think 1978, 
SAP was founded in Germany somewhere. And can you imagine what would have been involved in trying to sell a software solution to an enterprise in 1978? It's like majorly top-down sale. You have to do absolutely, you have to solve every requirement that this customer could possibly want. You know, they're big, long adoption cycles and all this kind of stuff. And now it's like, you look at any average sales team inside some enterprise and they're probably using 10 or 12 SaaS applications. Six of them is running on someone's credit card. You know, three of them are created by small private companies that you you don't even really know where they're headquartered and maybe there's only a few people working on it. And so it's this idea that you can say, here's how we carry out a certain process, like a a sales process or or a support process is a little bit flawed, I think. And what you really want to do is you actually want to observe how are the teams using all these different tools, right? If someone's issuing a refund and they start in Zendesk and then they go into Salesforce and maybe then they're in an internal CRM and they check some financial records and they, they finish it up in NetSuite, that may not actually be written down anywhere or defined anywhere. Maybe there's some training information for it, but what you actually want to do is you want to uncover it. You want to introspect it, get that process to come to the surface and then you can say, okay, how do we train people to do this better and, and figure out you know, who's doing the best at it? What, what are the technology factors that are slowing us down and all this type of stuff? So I think there's really just this idea that like with all of these more, let's call them highly structured frameworks for quality that you're talking about, it relies on the fact that you define something and then push it, push it down through your enterprise. And I'm not sure that that's, I'm increasingly convinced that that's not relevant for um, many companies, especially as, you know, sort of every company becomes a software company. Well, it's interesting to me. I mean, our our investment funds over at Greystoke Investments, we're really looking at the successes that folks who can kind of embrace a transition, almost being more of a fintech company are having, you know, because of regulations like the Jobs Act and the ability for us to advertise our investments, right? That, you know, that was illegal for 80 years until the Jobs Act, Right. So now all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there's this whole other side that's available. And for us, we look at like, you know, how do we have a media company? How do we have shows like this? Um, put ads for our own investment on our own show. And and then potentially have people buying like this passive real estate income from us without ever talking to a sales rep. Or being able to get most of their answers online. And maybe they're, you know, maybe they're putting in a, a really large check. So they want to talk to a human and just feel that like these are real people kind of factor, right? But the 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 call is maybe more about the relationship because they've already had their questions answered and stuff, you know? And so it we really think about it as a bit of a mashup of, you know, traditional finance plus a media company plus kind of a fintech company. And, you know, there's not, like, as far as we know, there's not like a really great playbook of how to do, how to do a, a three-way mashup there. So it's interesting to hear about, you know, discovering what's working and potentially spreading across the rest of the organization, right? Yeah. It's, it's interesting. One other thing you say there that I really care about a lot is, you know, you mentioned like once someone is in touch with your company, it becomes more about the relationship. And I think that's actually really important where as as companies become sort of software companies, you know, you look at an airline and, and think about like how few human interactions you need to have to book a, a world trip. It's, it's pretty amazing. And, you know, there's all these like little nuances that these companies are adding. Like with United now, you can, you know, see whether your bag made it onto your plane and all this kind of stuff. It's like, it's great. It's, it's all awesome. I mean, it's amazing. But what's not awesome is 
the these companies are putting more power in our hands to handle more of the experience ourselves. But when I do have to reach out to someone, I it, it it drives me completely insane when that person is no more empowered than I was through those tools. And that's another thing that we think about a lot. Where human, like our, our ambition is 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 sort of in some ways to give humans the upper hand, I guess, in their working relationship with technology to to have humans be focused on the tasks that humans do well and computers focus on the tasks that computers do well. And part of that is sort of understanding how they work together. And when you, I think when you achieve that, then you get something really special, which is when you finally do reach to a human, you, you end up with someone who's very empowered and they can all of a sudden make decisions and do things that, that you weren't able to do yourself through the software. That's, I think, hugely important. And some of that, I think, actually, from my own philosophy comes from growing up in a small country where even a really big company is, it's like dealing with a startup. I mean, I, I, I have one example where I didn't have a passport and I was trying to fly into New Zealand and, you know, my flight was leaving in two hours or something and someone gave me a toll-free number to call. I'd been living in the US for five years and I was expecting this sort of big phone tree and all this kind of stuff and I was expecting not to get anywhere. I dialed the number and some guy picks up, you know, g'day. It was Christmas Day, by the way. Like, yeah, g'day. I was like, hi, I don't have a passport. I really need to come home. Yeah. He's like, oh, well, we normally only do this for emergencies. And I was like, well, he's like, what's your emergency? And I was thinking, do I lie here? You know, and I just said, look, it's Christmas tomorrow. And I told my mom I'd be home. The guy on the other end was like, oh, it sounds like an emergency to me. <laughs> he, get, he, you know, he cleared me through, got me on the plane. And, and when I, you know, when I got there, he had a passport for me and all this stuff. And, you know, it's the same, I think, in New Zealand, largely, you know, you call your cell phone provider, you call your whatever, and it's like, you're just dealing with a small company. And and, and I really love that that sense of empowerment. So that, 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 I think, is an important value for us, like, especially when we work with with customers in the in the customer engagement space. You know, that's interesting. Growing up in Western Canada, by the way, one of my biggest heroes, a mentor of mine who, this Canadian billionaire that we used to co-own an energy company with, his mom is from New Zealand, and so he was always back and forth to Christchurch. <laughs> but but Air Canada is not necessarily known for for great service. Okay, but I remember somebody there. I had was trying to get down to Texas to this private equity fund. I was asking for a whole bunch of money, and I was like the the line was way too long, and I hadn't given myself enough time. I got like I'm like getting you know handing the lady my my ticket, and there's like. 90 seconds to get my bags on this plane kind of thing, right? And I'm like, oh, so glad I made it. She looks at my ticket. She looks at me. You know, I had this like random printout. She's like, yeah. well, you bought this ticket for the right day, but just for a different month. I was like, <laughs> oh. Yeah. And there, I'm like, there's like, there's no way I'm now make, making this meeting in Texas, right? And she looks at me and smiles and just starts typing and types and types and then print something out and hands it says, have a good flight. Nice. And like that, like, you know, that's like, I have this like undying love for this lady at the gate at, at Air Canada for like how much she saw me as a real live human being, not just a number, you know? And, and here I am all these years oh, later, oh, yeah. still sharing that story. Right. Well, and I think, yeah, yeah. It's funny. I had a really good similar experience with Spectrum of all companies last week, the cable company. Maybe some of that was just, because my bar for cable company customer service is pretty, is pretty darn low. But I mean, no, they, they were amazing. It was like, it was, and it was really just about that empowerment. It was like, there are a ton of things I can go do myself. There's 
huge knowledge bases online. I can log in, I can see my bill, I can see everything, I can test various things, I can speed test. But you know, as soon as I got through to a human, it wasn't just a matter of running me through all these things that I can do myself. It was like, okay, well, I'm I'm in a, you know, specially I have special permissions and access here. Like how do we how do we fix this issue for you? So I think like as companies invest more and more in building self-service product experiences. And and I want to be like really clear, I think like there's a oftentimes a, a, a tendency to confuse self-service like product functionality and interaction with self-service support, which I think is worthless. Like I never ever want to talk to a bot and I never ever want like, you know, I never want self-service support ever. I just want build those things into the product and I'll just use the product. But when that breaks down and I do have to reach to a human, it's like, I really want that human to be to be super empowered. And, and, and I think you actually get that freedom, the more power you put into the product itself, then the less people need to, to speak to you, right? If, you're, if your mobile app lets customers change their own flights, then you've just reduced a, a huge amount of calls that you're going to get. But there's always going to be the one call, like the, you know, I changed my flight and now I'm connecting on a different airline and I have my dog checked into the, you know, to the, to the, the, the cargo hold. And yeah, there's always going to be the one thing that you haven't, gotten into software yet and and so i think like in those cases you really want to speak to a human that actually is empowered to do something about it that makes so much sense my next question is well i've got a couple of questions i'll start with this so can you talk a little bit about about sam and andrew and the co-founders and and kind of how their backgrounds you know helped get this yeah. going yeah yeah so I, I did i did briefly mention that at the beginning and i forgot to circle back to it but finn was founded by two uh, accomplished consumer technology professionals. So Andrew Cortina was the founder of Venmo, which I think most people, at least in the United States, know, but very, very popular payments app here. And Sam was very early at Facebook, first vice president of product there and was there for a long time. And they were friends. They got together to start a consumer company about five years ago, and it was called Fin Assistant. And it was a... Um, it was called, they, they referred to it as artificial, artificial intelligence. It was kind of human, human assisted artificial intelligence to do kind of more complicated tasks than you would expect from an AI assistant. And they ended up hiring hundreds of human beings that would sit on computers and do things like book flights for people and make restaurant reservations and, and do all kinds of work. And coming from the consumer technology world, they were very used to having good metrics. And what they found is they just had no metrics. It's very hard to understand what task types are profitable versus non-profitable. You know, what task types tend to take the longest, what tools are the best to use, and even down to things like how much does a an agent's home Wi-Fi connection impact their uh, productivity or how much does the number of tabs that they have open impact their the, the speed at which they're able to get certain things done. And so they essentially built, as we know it today, as, a, as an internal back office product. And sometime last year, I was approached by a venture capital firm, Kotu, who's a lead investor in the company. And, you know, it was really a conversation about taking the company to the next level on the, on the B2B side. Uh, and what had happened is Finn had started selling this product to people in network and, and some people out of network, but really it started to get a lot of traction, in particular with what I would describe as recently IPO'd kind of unicorn companies that have a heavy operations component. So companies in spaces like meal delivery and vacation rentals, and you can you can kind of do the math on these. But it was it, the the next stage of the company was very clear. It's like okay, now we need to figure out 
how do we actually message this to a mass and how do we how do we improve our sales execution how do we become you know potentially a multi-product company in the future so i was recruited into that role and it's amazing i mean it's been so fun sam and andrew are still involved and you know i i I deal with both of them all the time actually i'm hanging out with with sam later this afternoon but yeah both both still involved and i think you know there's something to be said about from that customer centricity perspective that we're talking about earlier about building a product that really solves a problem for yourself. It, it's it's a very short feedback loop when you are the customer and the developer. Uh, and I think you can get a, a quite a quite a lot of progress in quite a short amount of time. And you know, it's it's it prevents you from getting distracted with all the bells and whistles that may not actually be useful for customers basically. So uh I'm interested in that use case you just brought up. I feel like I've got a sense of it a little bit as you talked about the airline example, but like, for instance, at Greystoke Investments, we've been looking at some properties in Hawaii, the idea of like trying to create a different kind of experience, put on tiny homes or maybe like glamping tents or, or stuff like this. And like, kind of like specializing, like creating an experience, maybe more so than just a place to sleep kind of thing. But Mm -hmm. it is, you know what I mean? Like, that is a business. That's not like a triple net lease and having Walgreens as a tenant. Do you know what I mean? Like that's a that's a business business, right? Can you give me some examples of of how that could assist us if we if we do this and we expand? You know, we end up putting these by national parks across the country or stuff like this. Yeah. So I think you know, Finn comes into its own on sort of two dimensions. You want to have the more people you have on a team, generally the more useful it is. The more data you're going to get out of it, out of our system, and then the more similar the workers that they're performing then also the more value you're going to get out of it. So, you know, an ideal customer is someone who, who's doing kind of both of those things. And so one example of that is in the vacation rental space, for example, we have a customer. And one of the things that would, when whenever they had to do a proactive cancellation, so whenever the the rental company themselves had to reach out to a customer and say, or to a, to a, a booker or whatever you want to call it and say, hey, I'm sorry, but we had to cancel this booking for you, you know, for whatever reason. This has happened to me recently where it was, it was something to do with like, you know, there was like a flood or something at the house. Anyway, they were previously then offering like, hey, do you want us to go and help you to find um, another place to stay in the same region at the same time and whatever else? And so what they wanted to do was A-B test. What if we didn't do that? Like, what if we took that out of the process? And so they tested it. And what they found was that such a high percentage of customers would go and rebook by themselves for the same period anyway, when they didn't offer to, to, to follow that second step of the process, that not only was it economically not worth doing, because the amount of time that it took was not worth it for the small number of people that didn't go and you know, find their own replacement, but actually their customer satisfaction overall was higher, probably because people ended up Although it might have taken them a little bit more time, people ended up staying in a place that was, you know, more uniquely suited to them rather than the the four or five options that the agent was giving them. So, I mean, I know that that example is kind of in the space that you're talking about. I feel like the exact example you're talking about is a little tricky because it's, it would be presumably a relatively small team, but you never know, you know, and, and we have quite a few customers doing kind of like concierge type booking work. So, you know, booking travel for folks or yeah, even even like down to things like, you know, virtual therapy and things like that, just understanding like what actions result in greater efficiency and greater happiness uh, and also greater employee happiness. Like that's a, that's a big one for us as well as like, you know, if you had went and built your small high touch sales team, concierge sales team, and there was you know, a particular page that was always crashing and it was driving people crazy, we actually would be able to detect that, but also allow them to submit their own comments and say, hey, look, every single time that I have to visit this site or whatever, I submit this form, you know, this really drives me nuts. And 
I think for a lot of teams, especially these types of at the customer, attrition is actually like one of the major enemies because once you get someone spun up and you get them knowing what they're doing, the cost of them leaving is very high. So uh, thinking about employee happiness is also incredibly important. I'd, I'd love to take the product, you know, just for some, for some insight for you, I'd love to take the product in a direction where even a very small team could get a lot of value out of it. And we do have initiatives around that right now. We're making it more customizable, more programmable, so that it can be used to understand work at a more micro level. And but I do think that you know, for the most part, today our customers tend to be slightly larger teams, 15, 20 or more people, up to sort of sometimes thousands of people. Uh, a ten thousand person team would be very, very, very large kind of thing. Yeah. Well, so going another direction, that that's yeah. helpful. Thank, thanks for sharing that. But going another direction, I am interested because. You know, there's, you know, uh, there's a lot of folks in the tech world that feel like if the product is good enough, that should be enough. And then there's also a large camp that realizes like, no, having great sales teams makes a lot of money, right? Can you, can you talk about specifically when you're, when you're selling technology that not everybody understands yet? Can you talk about a principle of sales that maybe not everyone with a sales background understands when you're now selling technology solutions? Yeah. There's so much to talk about here. (laughs) I mean, I think SaaS is a different place than it was 10 years ago as well. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if you are selling software, I think like it used to be enough to at least get a pretty strong lead to just be able to say, hey, we're a CRM, but we work in the web browser. And that was like, oh, wow. You know, or, you know, Zero, which is an amazing New Zealand company, was like, we're like QuickBooks, but we're in the browser. And it was like, oh, wow. You know, and I think now it's like everything is so much more competitive that any, any vertical, like any, any solution that you look at, there's going to be five alternatives. And so sales becomes, I think, a lot more important there. And, you know, I, 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 I use this like kind of stupid pun or like Silicon Valley joke, which is that I think it's really a middle out sales process, not a, not a bottoms up or tops down sales process. It's, it's this idea that you, you can't be in the room all the time. And so community and having a product that people can go and try themselves and discover some value with themselves is extremely important because you, you need at that exact moment when someone is trying to select a solution, you need to be in the room and you're not going to be there physically, but you can be there in the minds of developers. If you have you know, a great self-service experience like a company like AWS or, or Twilio has. And that's incredibly hard to, to, to under, like, it, it's so important. It's just, it's just so, so important because the switching costs a lot of time on these solutions are also extremely high. And because it's not box software, while there is a renewal cycle, there's not a replacement cycle and you tend to you tend to get renewals unless you're really screwing something up you tend to get renewals and so customer lifetime value is very high anyway i think it's really important that you know you have that long tail but as soon as there's a sense that you have a potential customer it's i think very important to have a cross functional sales team that can come in without being pushy without being salesy necessarily, but help the potential buyer to navigate their own organization. And we put a lot of emphasis, for example, on at Finn on having a really strong legal transactions team. So a really strong team that can come in and say like, you know, to a potential buyer who might be a general manager or a VP or someone who's in some part of, you know, the business, 
and say, you know, let me help you navigate your legal team. Let me help you navigate your security team and your privacy team. Here's here's what you should expect. And actually, we have sort of a one pager that we give to customers. Like, here's what to expect in the in the buying cycle, and it's you know, security review, and you're gonna we have to do the SOC compliance checks and all these various things. And then at the same time, have a technical team that comes in and does basically the same thing on the um, on the engineering side. I think. You know, our product is fairly heavily integrated. I think a lot of uh, cloud companies, you know, software tends to be more integrated with other other vendors. Let's say I think you know in the in the age of box software, you, software would be integrated, but typically against a suite of software from the same vendor. Whereas now it's you know you go into any company and it's like everything's integrated against Segment or everything's integrated against Salesforce or everything's you know there's there's these big like meshes of of enterprise software and so being able to come in and proactively say to a customer, we're going to help you navigate that is really important. And yeah, I think, I think that's just how you win. It's, it's a team effort every time the sales rep, you know, their, their primary responsibility is kind of people call them the quarterback. I I don't know that I like that analogy too much. I think it's more, they're, they're kind of like the um, scout, like they're, they're sort of figuring out, okay, in this, with this customer, the problem is going to be illegal. So we're going to have to really like, we're going to, we're going to you know, front load that, make sure we get through it before we spend too many resources on the technical side or whatever. You know, they're, they're in there sort of scouting out the account, figuring things out. And they're ultimately responsible for getting the deal signed. But you're, you're always going to have these like really strong team efforts. And yeah, I think there's, I think there's, uh, this, this may be obvious now because it's probably been the case for, for a decade now, but there's, there's sort of no such thing as just selling a product. <laughs> that sounds funny. Everyone is going to try the product. Everyone is going to use the product. Everyone's going to get value. And then there, it's normally like the second contract that you get with a customer. It's going to be the big one. And so this idea that you can go and sell someone something they don't want is, I think, just increasingly like not a thing. I, you know, and I, I hear stories from the 90s and you know, I wasn't in the workforce of people buying really expensive software, hardware combinations, and it never did what it said it was going to do on the box. And they paid $10 million for it. Like those days are over everyone's going to use the product at some scale before they sign a big contract. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's not about convincing people anymore. It's about like demonstrating the value and, and sort of um, demonstrating what you're going to be like to work with as a partner. When, you know, the idea of demos is not new, but there is definitely a difference between a demo and a really great demo in your mind. What what makes something a really great demo? I love demos, by the way. So I, I you know I worked in sales engineering for five years at Twilio and ended up building out that team. To, you know until I moved into product, which is was sort of a. At some point, I had this realization that like I came to Silicon Valley to build products, and so I, I moved into product. But my heart will always be in sales engineering or solutions engineering, which is really what you're describing. It's that part of the sales process where you're helping the customer to understand and adopt a, a technology product. And, you know, I think what I was saying before is less, and, and I, I will answer your question, but what I, was, what I was saying before, I think is less about demos and more about like, because of the dynamics of SaaS and cloud computing, you can actually try a product in your business. Like, you don't just have to get a demo. It's like, you know, so for example, at Finn, we're using HubSpot. I'd never used it before. And I just signed up for like a really cheap, like $5 a month or something and used it to run the business for a month. And I was like, this is awesome. You know, like, let's go all in. And so now we're on their, you know, their, their hyper premium, whatever. <laughs> it's, it's actually pretty expensive, but 
that's kind of my point. You know, there's, it's no longer just a demo. You also get to try everything in, in, in production, let's say. But I think that actually like hints at the way that I would answer for the, for the, the demo question as well, which is it should be tailored to the customer's business. We were really good at that at Twilio. We would go in um, and show someone a demo that like we'd really thought through from a product, like from a product perspective on like, what would I want to buy if I was this customer? What would I want to see? And then I think also you really want to have some magic and, and that's, it's a little cheesy, but it's true. You know, software at the end of the day, like makes difficult things easy. And the more that you can do that, the more magical it is. And if you can just show someone something and they had not previously imagined that it would be so easy, it's pretty, it's a pretty great moment. And, you know, Twilio had a lot of, a lot of magic in it as a product, but that, that I think is, is super important. And it's, it's easy to kind of have low self-esteem around magic. I feel like we're like, if you're, de- I'm, I'm the worst at this, but if you're dealing with someone who works in what might be described as a, a relatively mundane or, you know, sort of business as usual part of a business, it can be really tempting to think that blowing, like what you're going to show them is not going to blow their mind, but it might. Like, you know, it, it, it can be very specific to what they're doing, but if it makes their life, you know, that step function easier than what it is today, there's a good chance you'll, you'll blow their mind and they'll be like, whoa, that was awesome. Like, that was so magical. But taking a step back, it, you know, before those engagements, it can be really tempting to think like, oh, no, this isn't that interesting. You know, it's, it's we're, we're just increasing, I don't know, <laughs> some sort of utilization by 5% or whatever. Like, that's not very fun. You know, it's not, yeah, it's not SpaceX, sure. But like, it's, for that person that you're showing it to, it's pretty awesome. And so I think like having that conviction and and really understanding like what's gonna what's gonna seem like magic to this person is is pretty key. <clears throat> you know, that's something I think gets underestimated, right? You think about, you know, for 50 years, Harvard professors tried to convince us all that humans were rational. And I think it was just like wishful thinking in their on their own part, you know? And then the science comes out that it's actually the limbic part of the brain that happens before a decision gets made, which is where all your emotions are housed. It's like our emotions about the logic is how a decision gets made, right? And we spend so much time learning our stuff so inside and out. I think it's, I don't care if you're a regular sales rep or CEO, which as far as I'm concerned is just chief sales rep, right? Mm-hmm. It's very easy to gloss over the like, have we got their emotional judge to, to weigh in on what their logic lawyer has been going back and forth about, you know, like, like you, you can be right without getting enough emotion to get movement, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and I think like, you know, these large enterprise sales in particular, you, you probably will fail if there's not one person inside the company who's on your team. So yeah, you need to get that one person on your team and that's going to happen through emotion, probably more so than logic. They'll go and, internally try and out logic everyone and they have sort of a, an upper hand over you and doing that because they know the language that are, you know, is used inside a company and the values and the decision-making frameworks and that type of stuff. Uh, but yeah, you, you got to get that first person that cha- they, they call it champion, you know, but you got to get that person on, on board emotionally uh, and let them go and, and fight for you to, to, to a good, a good extent. Now, of course you want to be able to bring in the, the troops like as required, like I was mentioning before with legal and technical and whatever else, but it is very hard to get a deal done in a complex buying center where you have five or six major players involved on the customer side. If 
they're all skeptical. Like there needs to be one person who's like, I will put my head on the chopping block for this deal and let's get it done. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, no kidding. Well, I'm I'm interested in some of your personal philosophies. When you think about sure. when you think about what you've achieved, right? Like statistically, all of us start in these lower levels of corporations, and very few of us become CEOs. What do you attribute your success? The question makes me very uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm like very uh, okay. I, I'm Let very me ask it a different way. Let me ask it a different <laughs> way. When you think about certain things that you have done that you don't see everyone else done. Right. That you don't see everyone else do. What do you think some of those things are, which is, you know, a reason people are coming to you saying, hey, do you want to come be a CEO of this company? Right. I, I think it like early on, and this is this is very like nuts and bolts, but early on, I think a lot of that was, you know, there, there's this concept of what people refer to as like a technical people person. And, and you hear this all the time. Oh, I'm a technical people person. And a lot of times what that means is like, I'm bad at technology and bad at people, but I'm not as bad at people as technology people are. And I'm not as bad at technology as people people are. I really wanted to like, and maybe some of this was due to like lack of clarity uh, in my own life at the time as to what I wanted to do. But I really wanted to be like really good at both of those things. And so, you know, I would go and do public speaking training and I would go and do, you know, business classes and whatever and, and really try to understand and management and leadership and all this kind of stuff and be as good at it as anyone else was and and admittedly like you know i know some people who are just completely phenomenal that type of thing and maybe i'll get there maybe i won't but but then but then also on the technical side it was like no i'm not just i don't just want to be able to draw boxes and arrows on a whiteboard like i do want to go out and learn how to build software how to deploy software how to run it in production like i want to be you know and and maybe i didn't get as far on that side but it was but it was always very important to me like okay these are the things that matter in this industry um and so I, I think I got a pretty good level of mastery over both. And that, that I think enabled me to, to be quite useful in a startup. And, I, you know, I also think probably there's some attitude stuff there as well. When, again, you come from a small country, you're just very used to sort of doing everything. I don't know if you're familiar with like from you know, in the 50s, IBM did these landmark studies where they talked about power distance ratios and collectivism versus individualism. And so you would say that like Japan is a very collectivist culture with high power distance ratios. You know, your, your boss is superior to you. And America is actually like highly individualistic, but also high power distance ratios. Your, your boss is very superior to you. Let's say you listen to your boss. And, and then you have some like collectivist kind of flat countries. I don't, can't think of any examples, but New Zealand is this weird example where it's uh, highly individualistic, but very flat. You know, it's, it doesn't mean that much to be someone's manager or, you know, there's not a lot of distance created by 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 positions of power and so i used to get a really hard time when i first came to the the united states and i was working at twilio because i would see like the ceo and the cto like chatting in the corner about something and i just walk over and be like all right so what's the problem you know what what can we figure out here and i would throw myself into all these conversations that i was you know according to everyone else in the room they're like what is he doing but you know to me that was just sort of a very normal way of behaving uh, and so I think that was that probably helped me out a little bit as well. I did eventually figure out that there are times when that may not be appropriate. Uh, <laughs> but I think that attitude is actually really useful in a startup. And now that I'm running a startup, like I wish everyone was like that. I mean, I just wish like, you know, I'm constantly having these conversations where people are like, can I change this? Like, can I do that? And I'm like, yeah, of course. Like just, you know, the, the notion that like anything, the notion that things that exist exist for a reason inside a startup is like not true. It's like 
it's probably just someone did it the fastest way possible. So like, you know, if you want to go and change it, go and change it. And, you know, if you want to make suggestions about how we should be running our quarterly planning, like, please, let's hear about it. You know what I mean? And I think that that doesn't scale particularly well to, you know, if you have thousands of people chiming in on how our quarterly planning should work. But I do think that like that, that attitude works pretty well in a startup. So I think those two things, and I think like at a personal level, I mean, like I said, it makes me a little uncomfortable. But one thing I think about a lot is just just sort of the idea of self mastery and just discipline. And, you know, I've, I've, I've always struggled like an extrinsic mission. There's people like Elon Musk who talk a lot about extrinsic mission. Oh, I have this mission. I'm going to put people on Mars, you know, and it's, it's awesome. Like amazing. If you're, if you're the one in 100 person people who can come up, who have that extrinsic mission, like power to you. I, I just, I don't have that. I've never really been able to, to you know, I, I can get on board with that, you know, in the, in, the, in the company context and various other things. But for me, it's, it's a lot about just self mastery and just feeling as though I've done everything that I can. And I think, you know, that that's not that uncommon, but I do think that people tend to like, it's, it's a marathon, right? It's, it's really hard to keep that attitude, especially once you get um, maybe into like a cushy job or, you know, you're at a big public company and you're making good money. It's like, it would be very easy to just say, okay, like this is a good place to be. But I just try and remind myself of like, what, what will be harder? What will make me feel better? Um, and just like kind of make decisions through that lens. Yeah, it, it's an interesting thing because it is so common for, you know, the folks that make it onto this show. It's something I think about of like, there are some of us that have this like, kind of like this, it's almost like an insatiable need, <laughs> you know, like, well, what's next? Well, progress. Well, you know, and like, I think about like the Gallup Strength Finders book that talks about stuff like maximizers or achievers or stuff, you know, where like, I can think of like, times that I drive myself nuts. Like, why can't I just calm down and enjoy life? Why do I need to get to the next level? Right. Well, can I make a book recommendation for you? Do you know this book called <laughs> Driven by Dr. Douglas do. Brackman? Yeah, I haven't read it, but I, I, I think it's on my on my Amazon wish list. He wrote it with the with former Navy SEAL. And I think just given what you just said, you might really enjoy it because it it, <laughs> it kind of describes like how like societally it's really helpful to have some super driven people who who like are always looking over the next mountain of like, oh, what's over there and how that helps like for the survival. But but also how sometimes, you know, it's kind of like the difference between the hunters and the farmers, right? Like the farmers are into stability and like, let's keep it here. This is great for survival. This has worked so far. Don't rock the don't rock the boat. Right. And the hunters are always like looking over the next ledge and wanting to see what else. And, you know, they're potentially risking death because maybe there's no food on the other side of that mountain. But it also is like this great, like, finding resources ends up helping the tribe in the end kind of thing. I don't know if you have any I, thoughts on any of that. Well, I, I think there's different reasons that people get into that mindset. And, and I, you know, I, I have friends who now here, here in Silicon Valley who, you know, have had really good childhoods and really good educations. And they, they so a lot of them have that mindset but it comes from a place of like confidence and sort of mm. they're very comfortable with this. Like this is not uh, this is a comfortable place for them to be. And, and, you know, their worst case scenarios aren't that bad. I think for me, at least earlier in my life, it was really more driven by anxiety. It was really more driven by like a fear of a bad outcome. And so I, I sort of spent the last five years like really trying to transition through that from it being driven from a place of anxiety to being driven from a place of satisfaction. And that's a really interesting and 
difficult and soul crushing journey, let's say, but it's, you know, I mean, the outcome is, is obviously great. And I think like, one thing I got better at through the whole thing was I used to be really terrible at being bad at things. Like I used to hate doing things that I was bad at. And I think that came from that that anxiety driven sort of drive. And now I love it. Like I'm uh, on uh, like three days from now or four days from now on Saturday, I'm like taking my first boxing lesson. But like, oh, yeah. not because I want to like stay fit. Like I actually want to go and do a fight. Like I want to fight someone like in a boxing ring. And like, I just, now I like really love the idea of like just doing stuff for the first time and being at it. And because the, the, the returns are so high, you know, in, in the first few weeks, months, years of a new activity, you get so much better at it so quickly. So I actually kind of get a kick out of that now. But yeah, I, I think it I think it comes from different places and different people. And I don't, I don't think it's necessarily a good or a bad thing. Although I think for someone's individual happiness, it's definitely better to try and figure out how to frame it from a position of reflective satisfaction rather than sort of anticipatory anxiety about, you know, what could go wrong. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Well, listen, I know we're about out of time. Maybe a closing question. What do you think is one of the best pieces of advice you ever received? There's so many. Some of them are, I think like a lot of the advice that that I that I like reflect on a lot is fairly tactical. Like the, the one that I mentioned from Jeff earlier about customer focus, you know, this, this notion of our, our first sales leader at Twilio was very big on, you know, it's fine to win alone, but you should never lose alone. And that's kind of a cliche in the sales world. But one that I think is like exceedingly important across all different aspects of business. But yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I think like probably it's not really advice, but there's a really famous motto by a Sir Edmund Hillary, who's a, who's a New Zealand mountaineer, first, first, Everest. first to climb Everest. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny, like that seems like a big achievement, but then, you, you know, having the context that I have, having grown up there and then thinking about what it would have been like to grow up there in the, 1920s or 30s like before television and all this stuff like to go and to accomplish something like that is just like this mind-blowing accomplishment and you know the first thing he says when he gets off the mountain is it's not the mountain that we conquer but ourselves and Mm. that state is like pretty powerful if you just climbed like you know a big hill and you're the thousandth person to do it but when you're the first person to ever climb mount everest and you come down and give that statement like, I think that's a very, very strong insight into how he thought and like what, you know, what was going through his head at any given time. And so um, that's, that's great. Actually, I've never know. heard that. That's excellent. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. It's kind of like an affirmation. I think that I try to remind myself of a lot. It's yeah. Like even, even if it's a, even if something's a small challenge for someone else, if it happens to be a big challenge for me and I get it done, I'll feel good. If something's a small challenge for me and a big challenge for someone else and I get it done, I probably won't care. It, it, it won't really make a lick of difference to me. So, you know, that, that's, that's sort of an affirmation that I just try and keep in mind. I love it. Well, if, if somebody listening wants to get their own demo of Finn, where should they be going? Yeah, so you can go to Finn.com, which is just F-I-N.com. Or we're on like most social channels. Our handle is better with Finn, B-E-T-T-E-R-W-I-T-H-F-I-N. So you find us there on Twitter and other places. If you want to just reach out to me, more than happy to um, chat with, with, with anyone about the product or any other interesting potential conversations. My email address is just my initials. So EC, Echo Charlie at Finn.com. I love it. Well, thanks for making time to do this and congrats on all the success. Thank you so much, Jess. You bet. Bye, everyone. Bye.